welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things substrates, polka dots, and Web3. Today on Relay Chain, we have Adam Dosa from Polymath. Adam, can you give a quick introduction to yourself? Yep. Uh, thank you very much for, for having me here. So I'm Adam Dosser. I'm the head of blockchain at Polymath. Um, I started at Polymath around the around early 2018. At Polymath, we're focused on bringing regulated securities to public blockchains. So like, what is Polymath? Uh, maybe in a little bit bigger sense than just bringing yeah. securities to blockchain. So our kind of mission at Polymath is to unlock global access to wealth creation through the digital economy. Um, so what that means is that we're, uh, so we're sort of a fintech company based on, on blockchain technology, and we're working on enabling regulated securities, uh, being able to kind of represent and fully manage those securities on public blockchains such as Ethereum uh, and the new uh, purpose-built blockchain that we're working on at the moment called Polymesh. So in these securities can be things like equity, uh, they can be things like real estate funds. They can be structured products, debt, commodities. You know, really any kind of uh, asset that you can that you can think of can be tokenized. I, I guess you know why are we doing this? Why do we think this is important? Um, you know, when I look at so my, my background is uh, in the kind of traditional financial world. I spent I think the first sort of thirteen or so years of my career working at Morgan Stanley, which is you know a large U.S. Uh, investment bank and trading house. And you know, when I look at financial infrastructure as it exists today, it's usually private, it's usually proprietary, uh, it's heavily siloed by, you know, by jurisdiction, by country, uh, and so on. Um, and you know, really, our vision is that that, that financial infrastructure should be, you know, it should be transparent, it should be accessible, it should be more like a kind of public good rather than this sort of siloed private infrastructure. Uh, and you know, blockchain technology really represents an opportunity to kind of build that that financial infrastructure as a public good uh, and bring all these kind of great things like accessibility, like transparency, obviously reducing costs, uh, and as well as, you know, enabling innovation, right? So we've seen, you know, over the last um, 12 months or so, really, maybe 18 months, we've seen this sort of explosion of innovation around open finance and decentralized finance, uh, which I find really exciting. So, you know, enabling those types of innovation uh, on regulated products um, is it, you know, something we, we're sort of very excited by at Polymath. Yeah, so like you touched a little bit on like what is a security a minute ago. Like what makes security tokens so transformative? Because I think when most people hear a security, they might think of like a stock or a mutual fund, um, which are like, yeah, if you like look at it more deeply, that may not be like transferable across borders and has like certain trading hours. But like in a broader sense, like beyond just like stocks and stuff, what makes security tokens so transformative to the industry? That's, that's a great question. So... So security tokens have a few nice properties. One is that they generalize across lots of different asset classes. So you mentioned there you know, a few different things like equity and, and debt and so on um, and commodities. You know, one nice thing about security tokens is they, they sort of generalize across all those different asset classes. You, know, you can think of a security token as being just a way of representing ownership of an asset and it being kind of uh, somewhat abstracted away from that underlying asset. So that's one, one nice kind of characteristic of them. Um, Another kind of big advantage of security tokens, one of the kind of transformative aspects of them is that it kind of flips. So, so traditionally with securities, you know, the way it works is that you have, 
you have some security, it's traded, and then maybe you know, every few months or every six months or every 12 months, you have an auditor that comes in that looks at the kind of books and records for that, for that security, tries to make sure, you know, audits whether or not that security has been traded correctly, so has kind of complied with all the relevant regulations and, and kind of compliance rules that, that apply to that particular asset in the particular jurisdiction. Uh, and that's been the traditional process. And it's, you know, there's some very obvious kind of issues with that, which is that, you know, if there is a problem, you know, if there is some, let's say, fraudulent activity or some kind of illegal activity, it's only after the fact that you tend to that the auditors, auditors kind of come in and notice that, and of, you know, of course they they can then levy fines or, or take whatever kind of remedial action. So you know, at, at Polymath, what we're doing is we're building that compliance on chain through things like smart contracts broadly, right? So you have this on chain logic that enforces in real time, yeah, you know, at the moment that the trades are actually taking place or that you know that the kind of asset management is taking place, we enforce that regulation. So. Yeah, from a regulatory perspective, what that means is that you get, first of all, you, you can kind of audit upfront. So you can check that uh, you know, a particular asset has the right compliance rules attached to it on chain in a kind of fully transparent way. Um, and that those those compliance rules are then enforced in real time. So you don't have this kind of after the fact auditing process. And instead you have this sort of real time effectively auditing and kind of reporting uh, features. So that's one thing which is, which is definitely transformative and should help to, you know, it's one thing that regulators like, obviously it should help to reduce you know, malfeasance and, and these kind of uh, bad activities that, that we've seen happen in, in the regulated securities market. So those are some kind of, I guess those are like infrastructure type type advantages. I mean, the other the other types of things which, which, which people get excited about with tokenized assets and security tokens is, I mean, it's not it's not a kind of silver bullet for liquidity, but it certainly removes some of the barriers around liquidity. Uh, you know, we saw with utility tokens, which were kind of the like the kind of precursor to, to security tokens. Um, you know, we saw all this kind of liquidity being unlocked uh, in, in that space. Um, so, you know, certainly, so it's not a silver bullet for liquidity. You still need quality assets. You still need quality quality investors. You need trading venues and so on. But it, it removes a lot of the friction around that. Um, so you know liquidity is what one one benefit, and then the other, I guess, exciting thing is that you know from a sort of accessibility perspective, you know, lots of these kind of uh, things like these sort of VC funds and real estate funds typically have had quite high barriers to entry. So maybe there might be a minimum investment of you know, hundred thousand dollars or something like that. Some fairly high barriers to entry in terms of investment levels and so on. With you know with tokenized securities, because the the kind of cost and infrastructure scale very nicely it means you know rather than you know needing a minimum investment of say $100,000 because you have all these kind of administrative costs associated with every investment and all the kind of reporting costs you can bring those those levels down significantly right and and sell you know much smaller kind of tokenized um frac or fractional uh, ownership and assets yeah exactly yeah. um so that's one you know from a kind of like accessibility perspective that's uh, yeah that's a nice a nice feature yeah, and like a lot of these assets that are inaccessible, like art and other stuff, actually outperforms like the stock market that most people have access to. Yeah, exactly. You know, and there's, you know, as I said, the kind of you know, the mission statement is this kind of this idea of like global access to wealth creation, right? And, and typically, you know, wealth creation has been has been a little bit inaccessible, has required, you know, there have been these sort of barriers to entry. Maybe you have to. Um, you know, kind of understanding products is is complex, and you know there can be a lot of like obfuscation around around products and their performance and so on. So putting things on kind of transparent public blockchains helps to also you know, break down some of those barriers. Yeah. So like, how do you verify the underlying asset? 
if your underlying asset is purely financial, like a fund, it might be easy. But if you're like tokenizing a house or a painting or something, how do you verify that this thing actually exists? So it's a great question. Um, you know, polymath approaches. So we're a we're like a we provide we're a sort of a technology provider, right? So we're not we're not issuing assets ourselves. We're sort of providing the sort of basic technology that allows. Well, you know, sophisticated technology that allows asset issuers to do that. And for sure, you know, in most cases, putting things on a public blockchain doesn't solve this issue of, you know, does the actual underlying asset exist? Right? I'm sure there are lots of examples as, uh, you know, there's kind of Bernie Madoff type examples, right, where the underlying assets have not really existed in, in the way that people expected them to in the in the kind of traditional world. Um, so that, you know, that, those problems don't, don't go away. One thing you can do is you can make sure there's a very clear audit trail around things like documentation, so legal documentation and so on. Um, and you can, you know, you can put that onto the blockchain in some form, either via kind of hashing that data and, and putting it on the blockchain and, and kind of tracking that through an audit trail. But, you know, it, it is certainly the case that there's still some kind of off-chain legal due diligence required. You know, one other thing that's it's a little bit forward-looking, right, but one thing that kind of blockchains is quite, I guess, an experimental area in, in terms of blockchains is representing reputation on-chain. So this idea that, you know, if you have some assets or some actor or entity that's on-chain, you can have a kind of public view of the reputation around that, either that asset or the, or the entity that's issuing that asset. Uh, and you can kind of you know, that, that, again, becomes more transparent. It's something that potentially lots of people can kind of get involved in. And there's lots of, you know, things like uh, token-curated registries and these sort of different approaches. So, re- you know, reputation is definitely an emerging area, but it's an interesting area when it comes to, I guess, like almost as, a, as an alternative or addition to the traditional approach, which is kind of credit rating agencies, right? So, you know, you have obviously these big credit rating agencies like Moody's and, um, and so on and so forth, uh, Morningstar, who typically rate assets and, and rate issuing organizations, which is great, but being able to augment that with a, maybe a more kind of, sort of not crowdsourced exactly, but a more sort of public approach to, to reputation is another thing which um, you know, blockchains at least unlock some of that potential. Yeah, sure. So like with your background in um, like traditional finance and I saw you have like a degree in computer science. Um, like you could obviously go a lot of different directions. Like, what made you want to work on polymath and like in this area? So it's a great question. So, so, so I graduated with a computer science degree, as you say, uh, and I went to work at Morgan Stanley for the first uh, thirteen years, more or less, uh, and that was a great experience. And you know, I have no regrets. Uh, you know, I learned a ton. Um, I got to work in lots of different countries. I worked in New York and in Tokyo and so on. Um, I guess my kind of journey into blockchain, so I think uh, around 2016 or so, I got dragged along to an Ethereum meetup in London. Uh, so London has a great Ethereum community, some, some really kind of uh, fun meetups and so on. So I got I got taken to this Ethereum meetup by a colleague uh, who said, come along and, and have a look. And at that point, I'd heard of Bitcoin. I'd sort of, you know, Bitcoin had been in the news. I'd sort of had a, had a bit of a look at it, but never really dived in. Um, so I went to this Ethereum meetup and it was really, it was like a kind of eye-opening sort of experience, right? This idea of, yeah, what was really attractive as a developer is this idea of being able to build these kind of Turing complete smart contracts, or more or less Turing complete smart contracts on chain, which allows you to do all this, you know, kind of almost anything, right? And have it locked down in this kind of public blockchain with you know transparent rules and, and so on and so forth and kind of immutability. So that, you know, I left that meetup 
really like with my brain kind of pinging and exploding and feeling uh, super excited about it. And yeah, within a few months, I'd quit my job. <laughs> I was kind of consulting. Yeah, I dived in sort of headfirst, uh, yeah, learned as much as I could, you know, absorbed as much of the technology as possible, uh, was yeah, help, you know, was kind of consulting, doing uh, smart contract development and, and all of this thing uh, for a whole bunch of the kind of, uh, you know, with the, these kind of new blockchain organizations that were sort of springing up, companies like Aragon and, and so on. Um, so I did that. And then um, in 2017, I met Trevor, uh, Trevor Coverco, who's one of the founders of, of Polymath. Um, and, you know, at that time, Polymath was really, you know, security tokens were like a brand new idea. Polymath was really kind of helping define the space, helping, you know, kind of uh, explain why it was, you know, such an exciting thing. And for me, it was, you know, it was a great match, right? I had my kind of institutional or traditional financial background from, from Morgan Stanley. I had this sort of, you know, passion, if you like, for kind of blockchain and decentralized technology. So Polymath for me, you know, brought those two ideas together. Um, and, you know, it's kind of, you know, it was, it was, it was like a, Super obvious, great, great match for me. Uh, and, and I haven't looked back since. So I started working with Polymath. I started as a kind of consultant and then fairly rapidly became a, became a full-time employee. And then uh, you have obviously my role has kind of grown as Polymath has grown over the last two years. Yeah, so like you're head of blockchain now. So like you've transitioned from like an ERC-20 uh, platform and like you came up with this ERC seven twenty, I think it was ERC fourteen hundred. Um, fourteen hundred, yeah. sorry, um, ERC fourteen hundred standard. Like, what's been driving your decisions like around the blockchain tooling and infrastructure that you build your platform on? Yeah, so so it's a great question. So we have um, from when we launched in in late twenty seventeen uh, up until today, we have been building on top of Ethereum. So you know we have a protocol. Uh, we call it the ST20 protocol, which is, you know, effectively a, a series of smart contracts built on top of the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, and that's been live now for, for more or less two years. Um, and that's great. And we've seen great traction, adoption. It's given us, uh, you know, we have a number of companies that have come through and used the platform to issue um, securities, to issue dividends and do uh, corporate governance and so on. Um, and that's really, you know, the, the experience is helped us really understand the space, it's you know, grow our experience, you know, and it's a new and emerging space, right? So it's not something, it's not like an established thing where you kind of have to come in and learn about it. It's something where you have to actively engage, right, and educate and, and learn from, from the kind of other ecosystem players. Um, and we spend lots of time talking with all sorts of different stakeholders from KYC providers to regulators to custodians to other companies in the space doing kind of similar stuff to ourselves. You know, so, so we spent a lot of time learning and gaining experience and kind of understanding the space and also understanding what requirements different entities have, right? So you have, let's say, very kind of crypto native type companies that you know, you know very excited about novel technology. And then you have more like the kind of traditional incumbent institutions like the big banks and the, you know, the bigger kind of trading houses who are who are more risk adverse and have like a different set of requirements. Um, so, you know, building on Ethereum that is rapidly build, rapidly iterate, and kind of understand the space a lot more. As part of that, as you say, uh, we put together this security token standard, which is ERC fourteen hundred, uh, which was, you know, that was also a collaborative effort. We, you know, we we had this like workshop with twenty or twenty or so different companies that came. We, you know, we spent uh, several days discussing all the various different areas, and from out of back of that, we kind of came up with this. Um, Came up with this standard, and the, the idea with the standard is that, you know, much like ERC twenty, kind of drove this explosion of uh, interoperable, uh, I guess, protocols, things like DEXs. Um, obviously, companies issuing tokens, and now we see all these kind of DeFi type uh, protocols like Compound and Dharma and so on. Um, you know, the idea with ERC fourteen hundred was to do the same, but 
do it in a way that met the requirements for regulated securities, right? So utility tokens on, on ERC-20 are great for utility tokens where there's no, you know, where there's no really regulatory kind of compliance. Anyone can hold them, anyone can send them. It's all obviously pseudo-anonymous. Um, but for regulated securities, there's like a different set of requirements, right? You have to, um, you know, typically they're not fully transferable. They might be, they may be locked up for some reason due to you know, some kind of compliance rules. Um, there are, you know, some kind of, complex aspects of them. So the idea with the ERC-1400 was to have this sort of library of interoperable standards at different companies. So this, you know, so it wasn't like a polymath-only initiative. It was an initiative that there was kind of a community initiative. And, and we've seen lots of different companies building on top of the ERC-1400, um, including companies like Consensus and various other kind of companies in the space. Uh, and what, what it should do is, it, you know, the aim is to bring that same level of kind of interoperability that we saw with, with the ERC-20, but, but to regulated securities. So that, that was our kind of like Ethereum journey. And that's something, you know, we, we put, uh, you know, we're very close to the Ethereum community. We, we, we've sort of built this very kind of complex protocol. I guess one thing that came, you know, some of the learnings that came out from that process is that whilst Ethereum is great, and you know I love Ethereum, you know there's a kind of I guess there's like a saying right, which is you can please some of the people all of the time or all of the people some of the time, and yeah, Ethereum is this sort of general purpose blockchain. It's not optimized for any specific use case, right? So it's not optimized for gaming or for gambling or for security tokens or prediction markets. It's it's a general purpose platform, and that does mean that in our particular domain of regulated securities. There are some choices which are which are not optimal, um, and in particular, these are things like the proof of work consensus mechanism um, and the kind of permissionless mining process. So, if, you know, what one one kind of concrete example, one one issue that larger institutions have is that if you execute a transaction on Ethereum, you pay a gas fee to do that. That gas fee goes to the miner that happens to mine the particular block that includes your transaction. Um, but that miner could be anywhere. It could be in the US, it could be in Europe, it could be in China, or it could be in a country where potentially there's some sort of sanctions. You know, it could be North Korea or you know, some, some country where there are, there are financial sanctions. And for a large institution, that's a, you know, that's, that's a huge issue, right? Because there's obviously, you know, they're very risk adverse. They have huge kind of uh, exposure to that type of risk. Um, so there's certain, certain kind of aspects of Ethereum which were, which were non-optimal, which is why we started looking at alternatives. Yeah, so like I saw on your website, like, it's at least like two questions. One is that like you talk about like white label solutions. And so like were those kind of in that context of like, well, we need to make like a special a special solution? Is that like its own like private Ethereum chain? Um, or is that just like some sort of other like public chain solution that you would do for like a white label? So so white labeling, so that, so it's it's not a, a private blockchain solution. It is really taking our public protocol, which is, uh, so we have a, there's a utility coin, uh, Poly, which is what's used to kind of pay for services on this Ethereum protocol. Uh, it's taking that public bro- protocol and so we built sort of SDKs for that protocol, um, which makes it very easy for white labelers to build their own kind of front ends into that protocol. Um, so the white labeling solution at Polymath is partly around that, so partly letting companies build their own front ends and brand them obviously uh, appropriate to themselves. Uh, and there's also a kind of a tokenomics aspect to white labeling. I don't, I don't have all the details in front of me, but broadly, you know, if you're a white labeler, and you're using the protocol in a kind of volume type way. There's a sort of sort of like a staking type uh, tokenomics where you, you 
sort of stake a certain amount of poly and then you're going to get a discount uh, on protocol usage. So there's a sort of tokenomics aspect uh, and then also allowing people to effectively build their own front ends and their own, you know, with their own branding and, and workflow around the product. Okay. And so like the second question is um, like the challenges of like working on like a decentralized protocol, but in like a jurisdictional world. So like, um, like how do you deal with this for different jurisdictions and like what are the main challenges to operating that way? Yeah, so that's a great question. And definitely one of the, so, you know, we have this mission, right, which is we want to be able to cover all jurisdictions and all assets, right, which is a great as a mission, but obviously there's a kind of, you know, concrete problem is that there's a zillion different jurisdictions, you know, I, I mean, I guess hundreds of different jurisdictions uh, and, you know, also dozens of different types of assets. So, you know, when you look at the kind of combination, that's an awful lot of complexity. So so the way we've approached that, and this is true both in Ethereum and also in Polymesh, which is the new blockchain that we're building, um, is to have a highly modular approach. So uh, so like with the Ethereum protocol, there's a kind of core protocol, which is you know based around the security token and, and the kind of compliance and, and ERC-1400. But that protocol can then be extended using modules. So in, in different ways. So for example, we have one type of module, which is uh, related to Compliance rules or transfer management. So you know, so if you issue an asset in the U.S. under Reg D, uh, you know, which is one way of, one way of uh, fundraising in the U.S., it comes with certain types of compliance rules. So maybe you know the maximum number of investors in your asset may be capped. The maximum percentage that any individual investor can hold may be capped. There's probably some sort of whitelist. There's probably you know different rules for accredited investors and non-accredited investors and so on. So each of those compliance rules, rather than being kind of fixed in the protocol, is added via this module system. So you can kind of think of it almost like a kind of app store of functionality. So you have your core module with your, your ST20 token, and you can kind of pick and choose modules from this sort of module store and add them to your token uh, to kind of fully build out the feature set that you need. Uh, and those modules can be built, you know, and Polymath has, has authored and built a bunch of modules in that store. But, you know, if if you're issuing an asset and we don't have the appropriate module, maybe you're issuing an asset in, in Ethiopia and there's some compliance rule which you know we, we haven't built in-house, you can kind of build that module and add it to your token so that, you know, the tokens it helps to kind of future-proof them and it also helps them to be extendable to you know as many asset classes as as really you know, provided that you can represent that compliance rule in a smart contract in some way, there's no real barrier to the types of assets you, you can represent that way. So modularity helps a lot, right? Gives us that kind of flexibility. It lets us cover as many assets and jurisdictions as possible, and that's the same. So it's the same sort of ethos we brought to to Polymesh, um, where we you can kind of plug in these sort of smart extensions to to your asset, which which helps you extend. The kind of base functionality, so that's you know that was one one approach. You know, other than that, there's certainly like a lot of un, you know there's a lot of uh, learning and understanding and engaging with regulators, understanding different regulators. You know, we focused a lot on Europe, Asia, and, and North America, so you know, we engage with regulators in, in those areas and understanding their concerns and their kind of um, their sort of requirements is also important. Yeah, so like in this sense, the actual token itself is like a very low level abstraction, and then. You use the modules to construct the logic of how these tokens are allowed to be transferred. That's exactly right. And you know, the so modules kind of come in different categories. So, so compliance rules is one category. Sort of funding uh, or fundraising, rather, is another category. So you know, if you're fundraising, different people want to fundraise in different ways. Maybe you want to have a tier structure. Maybe you want to have a private fundraise. Maybe you want to have a public fundraise, obviously, depending on the asset and the jurisdiction. So that's another category. We also do 
there's a category of modules around kind of capital distribution for things like dividends and, and payments for structured products and coupon payments for, for bonds and so on. So that's like another category of modules. Uh, and in all of these categories, we have, I guess, you know, like the biggest use cases we tend to have modules authored in-house for, but but certainly you can you, know, you can bring your own modules into the into the protocol as well. Yeah. So talking about like the actual architecture of this thing, um, you're going off of Ethereum and you're creating this polymesh. Can you talk about like how this is different from the Ethereum solution and just an overview of Polymesh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Polymesh, um, so that there are a few key aspects to Polymesh. And the way I think about it is kind of in two categories. You have the kind of the sort of enabling there, which is things like the kind of consensus mechanism and things of that nature. And then you have the enabled layer, which is more like the kind of business logic around around it. So we start with the kind of low level first. So Polymesh is built on top of the substrate framework, the parity substrate framework, which is a, a framework which enables organizations to build new sovereign blockchains. Uh, and it's, a, you know, it's like a modular framework. It takes care of lots of the kind of low-level networking and, and things like that for you so that you can kind of focus just on the components that you want to focus on. So in the case of Polymesh, uh, there's a few key uh, aspects to to the to the blockchain. One is that it's a proof of stake blockchain, uh, and the block authors or the validating nodes are permissioned. So, you know, as I mentioned, obviously in Ethereum and, and in lots of other blockchains, miners or validators or block producers are permissionless, which means you don't really know where they are, and that that can obviously cause problems. You know, in Polymesh, we have a we have permission validators with that permissioning managed through on-chain governance, which gives users of the chain confidence that the people, if you like, you know, progressing the chain and producing blocks are either regulated or, or, or reputable organizations in jurisdictions which are, let's say, well understood and have kind of clear frameworks. Yeah, who do you imagine to be these validators? You know, I, I don't think there's like a one size fits all. I think, you know, ideally, so, so I can talk about maybe what the ideal validator might look like, right? Uh, which is probably a regulated institution of some sort. So that's maybe a broker dealer or a bank or a KYC organization or a custodian, those types of organizations. Um, obviously, there is a technical, I guess, experience needed to run a node because you, know, you have to run a node, you have to have infrastructure to do that. Um, obviously, running a node on these proof-of-stake networks, if you if your node misbehaves, either due to malfeasance or an accident, then there are potentially some penalties involved, these sort of slashing rules um, that help incentivize correct behavior on the network. So there's sort of certain sort of technical expertise that's probably required to do this. Um, we would like validators to be not just in one jurisdiction, right, but to be spread across different jurisdictions. So those, those are the sorts of companies we're aiming at. But I think, you know, the, the, key, the key point is they should be reputable organizations, so organizations with a known public identity based in reputable jurisdictions. So, you know, obviously that excludes certain like OFAC um, sanctioned countries and so on. And with the technical kind of competency, obviously, to run these nodes. Although we are seeing lots of like uh, infrastructure as a service companies come into the space. So that's another, you know, maybe if a company doesn't have in-house the technical expertise to do it, there are you know, increasingly more service providers able to, to offer that. Yeah, sure. Um, so you're continuing about the architecture, like after consensus. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> what comes so, next? So yeah, so consensus is important, right? So this sort of permission consensus. You know, there are some other aspects. So so, so we use this kind of grandpa uh, finality. One big advantage that has is that so it's so on a proof of work network like Ethereum. You have this kind of statistical or probabilistic concept of finality, where you know depending how deeply 
a block is buried in the chain or a transaction is, is buried in the chain, you have this sort of increasingly probabilistic idea that it's unlikely to be reverted. Um, you know, with the proof-of-stake network using kind of BFT-type technique, you get um, absolute finality, right? So when a block is finalized, it's finalized. So you know, th there have been proof-of-work chains. So I think Ethereum Classic is a good example, right, where we saw... I think a few months ago, right, there was a one or two day block reorganization of Ethereum Classic. And Ethereum Classic, I'm not, I'm not saying this, you know, this, that's one specific example. Um, and what that means for users, you know, if you're a bank or you're, or you're a large institution and you're, you're relying on these chains for settlement, it really means you have to wait two days for settlement, right? Because and I think exchanges now, I mean, I, I don't know all the details, but I think for Ethereum Classic, you probably have quite long waiting times when you're, you know, depositing to an exchange for that reason, right? Um, Which completely, like, kind of violates the whole stated advantage of blockchain about, like, don't settle on T plus three, settle, like, day of or something. Exactly You, you can't right. trust that, then. Yeah, so that's exactly right. So you have, you know, one of the, as you say, one of the big advantages, one of the big selling points should be this near instantaneous settlement, right? Uh, but, you know, you don't, I say certainly on proof of work networks that becomes more questionable. You're also sort of at the mercy of the markets, right? Because obviously the, the probability, the probability or the cost of a block reorganization depends on like the hashing power behind it and this slightly murky world of miners and ASICs and hash power and, and all this sort of stuff, which can be hard. You know, that risk is very hard to manage if you're a uh, if you're a large institution. And, and frankly, it, you, you know you may choose just not to manage it, which means you, you don't you don't kind of go near near those uh, near those blockchains. So so that that's one one important aspect. You know, another another kind of key point is around governance and forks. You know, so if, if you take Ethereum as a good example, right? So Ethereum has a sort of off-chain decentralized governance approach, which is great. And, you know, so I, you know, I have a huge amount of respect for, for the people working you know, on Ethereum, and, and it's a uh, you know they, they're choosing to go this tough route, right, with being general purpose of being decentralized. But what it does mean is that forks can be messy, right? You can have a contentious fork, and we've obviously have some examples of that in the past. Uh, you can have a contentious fork, and you end up with two two blockchains effectively, right? You, you, your blockchain forks, and, and both both sides of the fork maybe remain viable. And you know, there's been some some advice from from one of the big four accounting firms that if you're using a public blockchain like Ethereum, you should, as an organization or as an institution, you should have a working group whose only purpose is to manage that type of Instant, if you like, because obviously, you know, if, you, if you've issued an asset on, say, something like Ethereum, and Ethereum forks, suddenly you have kind of two copies of that asset, right? <laughs> One on each side of the fork, and you know, if you've tokenized a building, for example, it's not like the building suddenly um, replicates itself. Yeah. Right? It would be nice if it, that was the case, but uh, uh, but obviously that's not the case. And you know, for for base cryptocurrencies, that's not such a bad thing. Like you end up with ETC and ETH, and that's fine. They can have different market values, but with real world assets, that, that doesn't really apply. So you know, governance and forks and roadmaps and and so on can be tricky in these types of blockchains where there's you know, a very decentralized approach. You know, substrate or, or polymesh built on substrate helps with a lot of those problems, right? So we have you have this sort of so-called forkless network upgrades or forkless forks or something where you know because the state transition function is itself under consensus as a wasm blob on the blockchain, you know. All the kind of participants, if you like, all the observers of the blockchain have a very clear idea of what the sort of official blockchain is, if that makes sense. Yeah, the official like state transition logic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so like when it comes to Polymesh, who are the users? Do you see like normal people who want to trade these securities being the users, or is this more of just a framework for like an institution who wants to issue securities to issue them with? 
So it's really, I think it's a two-sided market broadly, maybe a three-sided market, right? So you have asset issuers, so people who own assets who want to tokenize them. So maybe you own a company and you want to tokenize it, i.e. issue equity, or maybe you own a, uh, you know, as you say, maybe a painting or something like that. So some other sort of security which, or, or a real estate fund that you want to tokenize. So you have asset issuers. The other side of the market is investors. So, you know, investors obviously from different jurisdictions and different jurisdictions obviously define investors as in different ways you have accredited you have non-accredited you have sophisticated or qualified and so on um so you have investors who want to invest in these types of assets or have portfolios or groups or, or and baskets of these assets and then really the third category which which is equally important is so i think of them as service providers so these are people like uh, kyc firms so, so firms that execute kyc and anti anti-money laundering and source of wealth checks on on individuals, both on issuers and on and on investors. Other service providers are custodians, which are which is super important. Right, custodianship of kind of crypto assets is one of the key questions raised by regulators all over the world. Right, having a kind of reliable, trusted set of custodians is is really important. Um, you know, we've seen obviously in the blockchain space, lots of assets be lost, often irreversibly lost, right, because mistakes have been made. So working out how you can have professional organizations that can kind of come in, maybe ensure that risk or, or have great governance around that type of risk is really important. Uh, so KYC, custodians, exchanges obviously are, are important, right, having uh, regulated or licensed trading venues for these types of products is important in, in different jurisdictions. And, you know, and, and there are some other kind of say, ecosystem or service providers in there as well. So, so I sort of see it as that sort of three-sided marketplace issuers, investors, and service providers are all key stakeholders. Yeah, and like the way they interact, like what kind of, like what would you think is interesting and in like um, something they could do together? Like what would be a cool application of Polymath that you would like to see? So that's a great, it's a great question. I mean, I can say some of the things that I'm most excited about in the future, right? So some of this is, is a little bit forward-looking. So... Uh, I think so. So at the start, I sort of mentioned DeFi or DeFi uh, or open finance, which is so, you know, so on Ethereum in particular. We've seen all these really interesting protocols like Compound, these sort of lending protocols, where typically you know, you have these kind of over collateralized products, and you can borrow and lend different types of assets. Um, there are other protocols. There's a protocol called SET, which allows you to basically create baskets of different assets, all in a trustless, non-custodial way. There's DYDX, which lets you take, let's say, derivative positions or leverage positions and so on. So you have all these kind of very cool DeFi um, protocols. At the moment, they're quite constrained. And I think they're constrained for two reasons. The first reason is that they tend to only deal with sort of base currencies and utility tokens. So typically Ether uh, and maybe some utility tokens. So I think MakerDAO have recently introduced BAT, which is a, which is a utility token. But you know, usually what you're borrowing and lending and using as collateral uh, are these either base assets like like ETH or uh, these utility tokens. Um, and you know, something that security tokens can bring on, on Polymesh and on Polymath is you, know, you have this huge you know, trillion-dollar regulated securities market globally, right? If you can bring those assets into DeFi, for me, that like you know, that's like DeFi times a hundred or something, right? Because you have suddenly you have all these kind of interesting, varied asset classes, and you can start to use those as collateral, right? So rather than having to use Ether as collateral, you can take your Apple shares, your Tesla shares, or whatever, right? Or some basket of shares and use those as collateral. Um, so that's one 
exciting thing, which I think will happen. Um, you know, these things take time, and, and because it's regulated, obviously the progress can be a little bit slower. But, but I think that's one thing that will happen. The other issue that uh, DEFI has is around civil prevention, right? So one of the reasons that typically all these protocols rely on over collateralization is that you know, if on the blockchain I lend you hundred dollars, if you, you know, there's not much that stops you running away with that one hundred dollars, right? Um, so. To, to prevent that, I usually ask you to put down $150 of collateral so that if you do run away with the with the $100, then I have sufficient collateral to kind of back that. Uh, and that makes sense. And you know, the reason why, why that's, that's the case is obviously these blockchains are all pseudo-anonymous. There's very little civil protection, right? So you can create thousands of accounts at very little cost um, and sort of from a from the perspective of, of a protocol, it's very hard to tell if it's the same person or different people interacting with it. So one thing Polymesh brings is you know we have that we have kind of KYC and identity as a sort of base layer construct in Polymesh. Um, so that as these DeFi protocols innovate and, and grow, you know, we hope that that will open the kind of design space for what types of DeFi protocol are possible because you do have some, it may not be perfect, right? But you have some measure of civil protection. You, know, you have, so you have identity and kind of KYC and all these concepts baked in at the base layer. So you can start to have protocols that rely on them. Uh, and I think for me, that's one, one thing that's likely to open up the space um, dramatically. Yeah, I think that'll be interesting as like interoperability develops is like, yeah, it would be cool if instead of using like Ether to back your loan, if you could like, tokenized your car and use that to back something else. Absolutely, yeah. Also, like, this kind of goes back to the whole, like, proof of ownership or, like, how do you, yeah, like, there has to be some asset that's actually backing this. But um, I'd be interested to see, like, rules for actual transfer of this, right? So, like, if you tokenize, like, your painting and then there should be, like, some rule that says, like, if somebody accumulates more than, like, 40% of the tokens, then they have the right to like actually take the painting and put it in their house or something. Like, yeah, I mean, so so definitely, so it's so another area that I'm I'm really excited about. We're starting to see again the kind of the kind of green shoots of this is are these like more complex types of products, right? So because you can, you know, the beauty of smart contracts and the beauty of this kind of blockchain technology, right, is you can start to build some quite cool, quite complex behavior. So you know, one simple example would be. So something like the set protocol where you have a basket of assets and the performance of the basket is a sort of a uh, uh, like a blended performance of all the underlying assets. But you can imagine taking, let's say you take a painting example, right? So there's a painting, um, maybe someone tokenizes a painting and they take t- they take that painting and they lend it out to a museum, right? And the museum pays some revenue stream back to, uh, you know, maybe they pay whatever, $100 a day or whatever it is. And that, you know, those $100 are taken and, and distri- distributed out to the owners of that asset, the kind of tokenized owners of that asset. And then you can imagine, you know, kind of doing sort of derivatives of that where you maybe take different types of things and you kind of blend the cash flows, you put them together and you pull them apart. And there's some, there's some interesting companies working on on that type of thing, right? So you can have these synthetic products or structured products. And you know, structured products have a little bit of a bad name because in the traditional financial world, you know, people think of things like um, you know, credit default swaps and some, some of the things that, that caused problems during the 2008, 2009 kind of credit crunch. But you know, one of the issues there was the opaqueness of the products, right? So you have these these baskets of bonds or mortgages or whatever, right? And it was super untransparent what the underlying products were. The nice thing about blockchain technology is you can do the same thing, but but be fully transparent, right? So you, so people can really see everything that's happening under the covers, right? You don't have to just 
rely on a bank and a credit rating agency to kind of give you some idea what the product is, you you, you know you can do your own due diligence. Um, and of course, maybe that requires a certain skill set. But you know, in the community, people can do this and and kind of understand it much the same way. You know, with smart contracts, of course, not everybody can can read a smart contract and understand it. But you know, you, if like the community in some sense can kind of do some due diligence and or, or auditing around. You know the logic in a smart contract, and and you can kind of get a feel for whether well, it's a safe smart contract, is it, is it a dodgy smart contract, or you know what what the kind of risk factors are. Yeah, I think the transparency and verifiability are really big because I think people tend to like they lump all these problems into one thing and they just say, okay, the bank is bad, like that's it, and just end of story. And it's like, well, actually, no, like the bank is doing something really useful. It's collecting assets that are completely disparate and finding a better way to allocate them. That's actually a useful thing. The Problem is that it's untransparent um, and unaccountable, and so like when it comes to verifying things, when you can put it in a formal protocol like a blockchain, it just completely takes that load off of a human being to do that, and like it actually like targets the problem, which is not like the entire institution; it's the transparency. So you know, one hundred percent agree, and I think as you say, it's it's a lot about trust as well, right? So. You know, if you want to use, if you want to buy one of these structured products from a bank, you kind of have to trust the bank. You have to trust the credit rating agency to have done the due diligence and to be, you know, for them maybe not to have any sort of side incentive. You know, for them, you know, because you know, one of the issues with, with with banking is often the incentives are a little bit misaligned, right? You know, the bank is maybe making money by selling you the product, but of course, then they want to sell you the product, and they may not be quite so incentivized to give you fully transparent information around that product and so on. And obviously there's rules and regulations that try to address that, but you, know, you can have this like, misalignment of incentives. And you know, what, one, of the, one of the nice things that blockchain does is it kind of commoditizes that trust, right? It removes this requirement to trust a single centralized party, whether it's a bank or a credit rating agency, uh, and instead you know, lets you, you know, provided you trust the blockchain or the technology, let's say, or the code or the protocol, you, know, you no longer have that requirement for these sort of central actors to, to be those sort of centers of trust, which, you know, in the banking world is a big issue. Right? I mean, trust is, um, you know, not, not everybody has you know, trust, those, those types of actors. Right. If we can get the bank to focus on identifying the best ways to redistribute assets and let the trust just be, like, inherent in the protocol, yeah. it removes a huge point of friction. Absolutely. And, and, and banks, so, so yeah, we, we, we spend a lot of time talking to the banks. I say, obviously, my background is, is there. And you know, banks are super excited about this type of technology. Of course, they're, you know, they're, they're risk adverse and they're a little bit uh, conservative, right? But they're, you know, pretty much every large financial inst- institution is thinking about, is investing in this type of technology, uh, is trying to understand what the future looks like, is, is doing that analysis. So you know, banks are super excited about it as well. Um, and for them, you know, that it brings them a whole bunch of advantages, certainly like around things like settlement, operational costs, uh, reporting, uh, reconciliation, all these sort of things. You know, blockchains solve a lot of those, a lot of those problems. So, um, so you know, and as, as, as we've seen, right, lots of banks are experimenting uh, in the area. Maybe they're dipping their toes and taking small steps, but um, but yeah, you know, certainly, you know, for those guys as well, it brings a whole bunch of advantages. So one part I wanted to go back to that we were talking about, um, we've talked a lot about like these modules, like an identity module and stuff like this. And we've also talked a lot about smart contracts. And in the like architecture of your chain, how do these things work together? Because this is something that we, we talk about quite a lot at Parity is like modules are very good for some things um, and smart contracts are very good for other things. And people tend to look at them as like completely separate, like this is a smart contract chain and this is like a runtime chain. But I think there's actually like a lot of ways that like runtime modules and smart contracts can work together. They just each have like special logic. And so like, how do you view that like as you build your chain? Yeah, so 
So I love that. And yeah, it's, it's one of the areas. So when we first decided to start doing research around polymesh, you know, it's one of the what you know, we looked at obviously a whole bunch of different frameworks, a whole bunch of different approaches. Um, and one of the things that attracted us to substrate to parity substrate was that the parity team were were working on both sides, right? So they're working on having these runtime modules, which I think was being like kind of base layer or, or layer one sort of objects or constructs, as well as having smart contracts, which is more like a sort of dynamic system where you, you, you can you know, dynamically impl- deploy new, new smart contracts. I think the key thing, as you say, is that, you know, for us, the most exciting use cases for smart contracts are where those, are where those smart contracts can have kind of rich interactions with the underlying runtime module. So let's say you take something like identity, right? So in Polymesh, identity is a runtime module. We have this, you know, let's say standardized, kind of sophisticated way of managing identity and, and, and key management and claims and attestations. That's a runtime module. So that's sort of basic to the chain, or it's a base part of the base layer of the chain. Um, but we also want, you know, we want people to be able to deploy smart contracts, maybe to, to build some sort of DEFI protocol or to extend uh, the behavior of, of an asset or something. And those smart contracts need to also be able to read and potentially push data to those identity modules, right? Because you want the smart contract to be able to you know, understand is the, is the person using the smart contract, are they an accredited investor? Do they have a KYC check? Do they have um, you know, whatever other identity characteristics needed? So having this kind of rich interactions between runtime modules and smart contracts, I think is one of the most exciting aspects of something like Substrate. Uh, and it's an area, so you know, something we, we thought about pretty early, it's something we're working with the Parity team. We have a kind of technical engagement with the Parity team, which has been going for, for a few weeks now, um, to help extend that functionality. So there were some very kind of basic ways for, for smart contracts and runtime modules to interact. Um, but you know, we were really interested and excited by enriching that experience. And that's something we, we've been working with Parity on for a few weeks and, and we'll continue to work on. Uh, and all of that code, it's worth saying it's not, you know, it's not in any sense owned by Polymath. That's all code that will go back to the main Parity Substrate master branch or version two or wherever it ends up. Um, and you know, we, we hope and expect that not just in our domain, our, our domain is regulated securities, but there's obviously a whole bunch of different companies working on Substrate. We kind of hope and expect that that functionality will be useful to in, in a whole bunch of different use cases. You know, whether it's you know, Edgeware or you know, any of these other kind of companies that are looking at smart contracts and how they can uh, how they can be be used. And, and you're right; I think it's, a, it's this sort of interesting idea that at the moment you either have a smart contract chain or a runtime module chain. But actually, I think the most exciting thing is where you, where you have both and they kind of complement each other. Yeah, like the the runtime modules are really good for if you have like if you know the bounds of your logic. Like, I just want to like add this person to an ident- identity database. Like, that's very simple. Um, whereas, like a smart contract is like, if you don't really know how long it's going to be, so like if you want to compare, oh well, somebody made a transaction, I have to like compare against this list, but I don't know how long it's going to be. It's like that's a nice place to use some gas metering or something to limit it. Yeah, so so that's definitely one aspect. You know, the other aspect. So again, right? So, so for for polymesh, we know that. So we we want anyone to be able to use network. We know that there's a whole bunch of asset classes and jurisdictions out there where. You know where maybe legislation is still evolving, right? So we don't know all the compliance rules. We want people to be able to, like, we, you know, every time we support a new asset, we don't want that to involve having to upgrade the entire network, right? So being able to, you know, nice thing about smart contracts is that they can obviously be deployed dynamically in a, in a more or less sort of permissionless setting, right? So being able to kind of extend our basic functionality in ways using smart contracts is something which is great for us, right? So it means we don't have to anticipate every possible type of asset, you know, very similar to our, our modules in, uh, on our Ethereum protocol. 
you know, we expect people to be able to build compliance rules as smart contracts, deploy them, attach them to their assets, uh, and they're good to go, right? And they can do that without you know, Polymath having to upgrade the whole network. Um, is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Um, what's your What's your progress like as far so, as... Yeah, so, so I can definitely talk a bit about that. So we, we where we've got to to date, so we spent the first few months building a proof of concept in Substrate, which we completed around six weeks ago, I think, or a couple of months ago. Uh, and we're now very focused on version one of Polymesh. Um, our timeline for version one is Q2 testnet. So that's Q2, Q2 2020 testnet uh, and Q4 2020 for the main net. Um, so that's, you know, we're super focused on doing that. Um, we recently, so a couple of weeks ago, we open sourced our code base. So we had been working in a kind of semi-stealth private way. Uh, our, our code base is now uh, fully open source. You can find it if you if you Google Polymath Network GitHub, you'll find it. Yeah, um, we can put a link to it in the notes. Great. So so it's out there, and you know, so so I'd encourage. You know, we've, we've already seen a bunch of developers putting some PRs in, taking a look at the code. Obviously, for us, that's great. It's amazing to see that kind of community involvement. You know, one of the reasons why I'm so excited to be building Polymesh on Substrate is that you know Substrate comes with a community, right? So obviously it's, it's a parity written uh, framework, but there's a whole bunch of different teams, whole it's, it's kind of like a whole community around it, right? Building tooling, working on the framework. You know, we you know, our experience in Ethereum was that the community is so important, right? If you want to, you don't want to work in a vacuum. You want to be able to learn from other people in the space. You know, whether they're competitors, whether they're doing completely different things, there's always a ton to learn, right, from other people. Um, and we saw that in Ethereum. We're really excited to kind of engage with the community on the Substrate side. So, yeah, so, you know, our code base is open source. If you're if you're a developer, come and take a look. You know, all of the runtime modules we kind of talked about and a bunch more are all, are all out there. Obviously, it's a fast-evolving code base because it's, uh, you know, we're, we're in that kind of heavy build stage. But, um, you know, we'd, we'd love any, any feedback on thoughts on it. Yeah, and where, where else would people look for information, like your website? Yep, so we have polymath.network uh, is our kind of main uh, website, and that links out to, so we, we, we started blogging about a bunch of different things in the space around our work on Substrate, and uh, we, we'll, we will kind of continue to do that, and you know, maybe some of the challenges, some of the difficulties, some of the solutions, all those sort of fun things. Um, so you can find our blog on polymath.network, say GitHub. Um, we also have a Telegram and various other you know, Gitter channels and so on, but that's, that's all linked to uh, from our from our website. All right, great. Thanks for coming on, Adam. Great. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Relay Chain. We'd love to keep in touch. Follow us on Twitter at Relay Chain or email podcast at parity.io. Our team at Parity includes some of the leading peer-to-peer networking developers, consensus algorithm inventors, blockchain innovators, and Rust developers. If you want to learn more about our work or want to work with us, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter. 